as we travel further into this book of Micah, we are confronted with all kind of manner of humanity's brokenness, aren't we? Oh, that's a pretty vivid description that we just read through. Confronted with the broken malady that humanity has when this overmastering condition of selfishness uh, plagues the human heart. We see a picture where people are consumed, if you like, by self-focus and they begin to foster things like entitlement and they become comfortable with uh, the desire to be in dominance over other people. The activities that they that they take engage in are all about manipulation and they're completely indifferent to the consequences that these actions bring. They're completely indifferent to the consequences of oppression that, that flow out of these actions. And that's Israel. That's the landscape of Israel that, that, that this prophet Micah is walking into and, and speaking into. One of the things we need to remember that as we hear Micah talk on behalf of God against this accepted way of life by God's people, uh, I don't think we're meant to miss this fact, is that Micah's name actually means who is like God. And everywhere Micah goes, his name carries that question. And time and time again, as he wanders around, the answer is no one. No one's like God. No one seeks his heart. No, no one uh, seeks the design for life that he has. Isaiah, a contemporary of Micah, speaking at the same time to the same people, says everybody is just doing their own thing. Describes them like a bunch of sheep that go astray and just do their own thing. So in a people that were meant to look like the heart of God, in a people that had God's law that were meant to look like the heart of God, no one, and we just read, no one is found to look like him. No one does. Micah is speaking difficult words to a nation that has just gone off the rails. They have neglected their identity and their responsibility as God's people. And in doing so, the community that God brought into being have abused and distorted the social and and religious practices that were designed, A, for God's glory, and B, for our joy. You see, in Israel, a primary sin that's going on is they have a bad relationship with God. They've neglected how they have a relationship with God. And now the outworking of neglecting God means the neglect of people and widespread injustice. In chapter 1, we revealed that this injustice and this impression essentially flowed out of, in general terms, Israel's idolatry. And idolatry simply means the placing of their affections, their actions, their desires towards the things around them, towards anything but God. And then in chapter 2, Micah kind of got specific. He drilled down a little bit. He talked about how the idol of entitlement led to injustice. And it's because of this idolatry, uh, this neglect of God and pursuit of other things, it's, it's because of this injustice that God in this book is now bringing his judgment to bear on his people that we read about in here. Now in chapter 3, Micah is showing us how this idolatry this over, overmasters the heart to carry out oppression and injustice through the misuse of power. It's the misuse of power that is further 
oppressing the people of God and the people around him. Now, it's critical though to understand that Micah is not speaking out against power as though power in itself is the issue, as though power in and of itself is a sinful uh, and bad thing. Uh, most of us would be familiar with uh, this uh, dictum, a slogan, if you like, from Lord Acton. I hope that's how his name's pronounced. He trotted it out. He, I think he was actually writing a letter to the church and he said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Acton was a politician and he was a history professor. And as he cast his eye over history, he made the observation that power is what corrupts people. And absolute power absolutely corrupts people. This persistent problem has led to some people uh, rather power, powerfully insisting and rather ironically insisting that the solution lies in, in getting rid of power structures, in getting rid of all forms of the oppression of power. However, Micah is not denouncing power, nor is he envisaging judgment leading to the end of power and power structures, but rather that God's people would reconsider how power is to be executed, how power is to be used. Power is a naturally existing relational dynamic that God designed for human flourishing. All people, to some extent, at, from time to time, uh, will have the opportunity to exercise power. The ability to determine outcomes and environments. The, the, the ability to, to shape someone's thinking. Think about your kids. They're pretty powerless, but they can exercise a fair bit of power over you, can't they? These power relationships are in family dynamics, they're in workplace dynamics, relationships, marriages, all sorts of things, sporting teams, churches. The point is that everyone has power to a greater or lesser degree. It's a gift from God. And his people are called to employ it for his glory and for the common good of everyone around them. God's intention is that humans are supposed to utilize their power to help the one in need. Just as God has done, just as their creator has done. God is the one with absolute power and he exercises that power for our well-being. He uses his power for our joy and as a consequence of that, his glory. Stephen Um, uh, in his commentary on Micah says this, Power is not what is intrinsically sinful. It is the abuse of power that needs to be addressed. Micah's words reveal what God thinks about power gone wrong and the way that his people can re-harness and understand power for its intended purposes. He suggests that chapter 3 has, has three main points that we, can, that we should consider. Two kind of reside in the chapter and the chapter kind of points us uh, to the third one. The misuse of power, uh, the proper use of power and the renewal of power. The first thing that confronts us about this passage is the magnitude and the, and the scope of injustice from the misuse of power that's at play in this community. That is equipped, this community is equipped with both the law and the experience to be a community that rather than abuse power does justice and loves kindness. We read there, at the outset of, of Micah's um, condemnation of this appalling misuse of power, he makes it very clear that this is not an innocent or, or unintentional environmental uh, destination or in situation that we have. 
They made it. They programmed it. They got themselves there. Last week we saw how unrestrained entitlement of the power saw them just in their self-entitlement devising wickedness as they slept in their beds at night. Throughout the night they're thinking about how can I use my power to abuse those around them. But what Micah now says to these people is rather than devise wickedness, was it not the gift and responsibility of God to the leaders of this community, you culture setters, to know justice? That's what you should have been about. That's what you should have spent your sleep and waking hours doing, knowing justice. Isn't it the art and the execution of justice that you exist for? That the roles of of leadership, the roles of authority, uh, these God-given structures are there to execute justice. God has placed rulers in, in the roles and gifted them with the blueprint for a just fair, loving, uh, good uh, community with good social relationships where power is used to redeem, where power is used to rescue and where power is used to restore. Not only was it the case that they had the law that enabled them to do this, this blueprint, this guidebook, but it was their own experience. Israel's story was one of God exercising his power to rescue them, to redeem them, to restore them. The rulers were expected to know and execute justice, both from their knowledge of the law, the blueprint that they had, uh, that God had given them, and from their own experience, from their own story, their own encounter with God. They were to be God's instruments of his character to the community. That's their role as leaders. Uh, We read about this. I mean, you could read all about this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, just the justice that flows through these books. But here's a sample. Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19 outlines, just as he, God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the alien, gives food and clothing, clothing, So, and you are also to, so love those who are aliens. For you were in Egypt. You were powerless in Egypt. There was widows. There was those without fathers. You had no power to rescue yourself. Who rescued you? God exercised his power, made his name great by rescuing the unrescuable. That's how God used his power. Goes on in Deuteronomy 15, 4 to 5. There should be no poor among you. For the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, like you didn't, you didn't earn this, you didn't win this, God gave it to you. He will richly bless you. It's got everything you need. If you fully, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow these commands I have given you. There's, there's the blueprint for justice, for, for community. Israel was to do things like cancel the debts of people every seven years. Based on the exceeding generosity of God to them, they, were, they understood they were stewards of the land. They didn't really own anything, but they were to steward it, not for their own personal gain, to increase their power, but to make sure everybody was doing okay. They were not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards each other, but open-handed, freely meeting the needs of everyone. Deuteronomy 15.7-8 To know justice is to have a working knowledge of the statutes and the commands of God that uphold and lead to justice, but it's also to have uh, more than just an intellectual appreciation or competence, but it's to have this emotional, relational, ethical uh, intelligence. 
the law and its exegesis, its, its, its administration, was to be done with sympathy for the afflicted. And, and its punishment was to be corrective to the oppressor. To know justice is to execute the character of God into the social life of the people around you. And, and, and the rulers and the leaders and the priests and the prophets and the kings, are the, they, they, they are the initiators of this. They're the ones who lead the people. Alarmingly, Micah says, rather than know and do justice, you hate it. You hate what is good. And in your actions, you invert the law so that you can pursue what you love, which Micah declares as evil. This is where abuse and misuse of power finds its origin. When evil is given a green light as permissible, when power is used for evil purposes. On Thursday, Josh and I were kicking this passage around uh, up in my office and Josh noticed a couple of helpful categories that just emerge uh, out of this, this chapter that are here to help uh, describe what the misuse of power looks like when, when power fails to love what is good and pursue what is evil. It perverts justice. Uh, the misuse of power detests justice and the misuse of power, uh, kind of couldn't think of a, a word for this, so just sells it out. Just sells out justice. And fundamentally, I was thinking about this as we were singing the songs and I was sitting in practice. We, the misuse of power that allows us to invert it and detest it and sell it out essentially flows out of the fact that we don't trust how God exercises his power towards us. Misused power flows out of a mistrust of God. In verses 2 of this chapter, we see that it's the, um, the perversion of justice that leads to the misuse of power. It's not merely that the leaders have neglected uh, their responsibilities. They've intentionally inverted them. Rather than defend the marginalized and the helpless with compassion and mercy, they use their power to take advantage of them, of their vulnerability. It's a classic, uh, one person's misery is another person's merriment. You know, your loss is my gain. Oh, I see, you gotta sell your house because of an ugly divorce, do you? Or a failed business deal. Oh, you, you're chronically ill and the medical bills are mounting up. Gotta, gotta get rid of some assets. How terrible for you, but how wonderful for me. Bet I can pick it up cheap. It's this kind of thing. ANZ Bank actually have an ad based on this situation at the moment. It's a culture that fails to grieve loss. There's no mourning of pain and, there's, and suffering. There's no mobilizing of, of, of our resources, their resources, to aid those who are about to lose everything they have. It's just the swift devouring of what's left. You know, that's good business sense, isn't it? If you can get a deal somewhere, foreclose a home on a loan, pick it up cheap and resell it, could even be the providence of God. You know, God, godly ordained moment for me to get ahead. No godly ordained moment for you to suffer and sacrifice and help that person out, maybe. But they've inverted it, you see. They see it the other way. Micah, in an extended metaphor through verses 2 to 3, says, No, this is a perversion of justice, that you are treating the people that, that, that are in your power to protect like you're their enemies. So rather than be 
have a relationship of protectors. We have a relationship of war. You treat them like your enemies. This, this, these verses here are meant to shock us. The description of brutalizing, dehumanizing uh, cannibalism are supposed to shock us. The misuse of power, this is metaphor, leads to the devouring of people. But more shockingly, this metaphor is actually based on uh, the, the, the practice of uh, the Assyrians, of the Assyrian army, who are the political threat to the north, who are the enemies of Israel. They had a common practice. When they would capture their enemies, apart from dismembering them and impaling them on stakes and various things around the place. Have you ever, anyone ever seen the movie 300? I haven't, I wouldn't watch that kind of stuff. But I have heard that there is a scene in there where there's all these mangled and twisted bodies and trees and things. That's literally what these Assyrians would do. But when they weren't doing that, they would flay the skin from their bodies while they were still alive and they would take this skin and they would plaster it across the walls of their towns and their buildings. God's indictment is that you are meant to be my magistrates doing justice and loving kindness to my people. But in your perversion, in your inversion of this, you now treat my people metaphorically like an enemy, like the Assyrians would. Rather than come as their helpers, you come as a devourer. And what's worse, you do it in my name, as my priests and my prophets and my rulers. What a horrible picture. When the church is a devourer of people. It's a severe accusation. The leaders had the privilege and, and, and the the potential to harness this gift of power for the good, but instead they misuse it for evil. In verses 4 to 7, we read how God feels about this. We read about the coming uh, judgment that, that that, that he'll roll out. And the judgment fits the crime. Just as the rulers had turned a deaf ear to the cries of the helpless, treating them like an enemy, So too will God, when these rulers eventually cry out in their helpless state, God will be silent to them. God will not answer them. They used their powers to increase their comfort. And as they did, they gave false picture of who God is and what he's like, which in turn led people astray, which in turn gave a misrepresentation of what he's like. How often do we hear that description in, in society now, in the community, they base what they think about God, people base what they think about God on their experience with the church. On their experience with his people. To these prophets and these priests and these rulers and even kings, God will remove their privilege their privileged places, their gifts, their powers, and he will replace their prestige with shame. God will become silent to them, their gifts taken from them. And then finally in verse 7 we see that, that like unclean lepers, they will have to cover their lips. The very air which they used their giftings to pervert justice has now become their shame. In their unavoidable demise, there will be no answer from God. They have so blatantly, so arrogantly misused their power. Now I think Michael would charge us to examine our lives. When do we invert justice? 
because it's in our power to do so. We're not kings, rulers, priests and things, but we're in families. We're in workplaces. Rather than use what we have to ease another's misery, do we act to increase our own comfort? Are there times that we act like enemies to those we should protect? Micah's timeless and his, and his classless call to reflection asks, is there a pattern of life in me, one that perverts justice with the power that I have at my disposal to be selfish rather than selfless? The second thing is that, or the second observation from this passage is that power is misused when we detest justice. The detesting of justice is seen in how the elders have this fragrant disregard for the foundations on which God built this justice. They just completely disregard God's commands and his word. Rather than build a healthy community, they they point to the ever-increasing skyline of the capital. And they say, look at our prestige, look at Zion, look at the temple. All the while, while those who live in its shadow are dying both spiritually and physically. I couldn't help but think, uh, as as I was reading through this and trying to understand it, of the imagery and the narrative that that comes out of the Hunger Games. The people that live outside the capital uh, are both uh, sport and labour. For those who live inside the capital, the entitled rich who pervert and detest justice just to enjoy life, just to get what they want. Who exercise their power with detest and contempt because it is just an inconvenient idea, justice. Who have built their whole way of life via a system, systemic detesting of justice. There is an immoral appetite at work inside of, inside of Jerusalem, inside of Zion. This is Israel caught up in this appetite for cultural success and acknowledgement. Who's out there tweeting about our city? How many followers tune into our lavish worship sessions? Are we trending with our neighbors? Are we competing well with our neighbors? Are we as powerful as our neighbors? Justice. Doing what is right simply slows us up. From their darkened hearts comes the, come these distorted uh, actions. They twist everything that is upright. Isaiah, through Isaiah, sort of in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, he says, they make what is good evil and what is evil good. They just keep twisting things. And what's happened is instead of Israel being a theocracy, and that's a a nation, a community under the law of God, it's the law of God, an external thing that comes down and 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 you know runs the place, Israel has become an oligarchy. That is a community under a small group of tyrants who simply despise justice, and their despising of justice is evident in their disregard of God's word. You know, when I said earlier, when we, we can pervert, we can use our power poorly when we mistrust how God uses His power to us. When we mistrust that God is good. And when we mistrust this idea that when He exercises His power to us, we go and do all kinds of crazy things. In the Ten Commandments, God gave us a gift to do justice to the people. It guaranteed all people four rights. The right to life. You shall not murder. You just can't go around killing people. The right to a home. You shall not commit adultery. The right to have a safe home that you can come to. 
The right to property, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And the right to reputation, you shall not bear false witness towards people. They detest these things. Rather than, rather than value these rights and obligations to uphold justice, they detest them as obstacles to be moved with their power to get what they want. The violation of these rights is highlighted by the fact that Zion is built not on justice, but on blood. On the killing of people. On the devouring of people. On false testimony and lies and iniquity. Third observation that we get that results, that, that allows us to misuse power is when we, is greed essentially. The powerful can buy and sell justice for a price. You can get a favorable outcome or receive the promise of blessing. In verse, back in verses 5, Micah, it said, These prophets would speak peace only to those who would feed them. And then unleash literally a holy war, that is, a war from a religious perspective onto someone who doesn't feed them. Justice is a commodity that comes with a price tag. And as religious figures use their power as God's magistrate, they're not coordinating justice by making God's law known. But they're using their power and their privilege just to feed their own appetites, to get their own desires, to build their own temples. So rather than presenting a picture of God who comes to the aid of the poor, these rulers, these priests, these prophets model a God that takes what little the poor have on the threat of unfavorable outcomes, on the threat of you know ruined reputations. Can you... Can you see the picture here of, of say, someone in my position saying, unless you talk favorably about me, unless you say I preach great sermons, I'm not going to pray for your cancer or something like that. You know what I mean? Terrible, terrible. Incredibly, incredibly, as the accusations and denunciations uh, mount up against their misuse of powers, they pile up. Their defense is, is not the Lord in our midst? Look at what we've built. Look at the grandeur of this place, this place of worship. Listen to how awesome our music is. We have made God looking powerful and impressive. No disaster will come to us. Surely, if disaster would just come to us, surely that would mean, you know, the shaming of God. Sin does this, doesn't it? It plays down our responsibility in what we do and it exaggerates our entitlement and it kind of tries to bargain with God. The more and more the powerful trade in the neglect of justice to preserve their comfort, the more and more they lull or convince themselves into thinking that God can be brought or manipulated. There's no, they see no discrepancy between their worship and their wickedness. They think perhaps, I imagine, God will not bring this place down. That, that would, I mean, that would shame God. Imagine the damage to his reputation if his most successful church was ruined. If the place where he said Zion, Jerusalem, if the place where he said he was going to put his image there, his, his presence was... Imagine if that place was... That won't happen to us. But this church is no longer a place where the presence of God is made known. And that's what Zion and Jerusalem was supposed to be. It has become a seat of power built on the perversion, the detesting and the selling out of justice rather than being a, 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 a light on a hill. 
you know, a voice of hope where justice is done. When Solomon actually built this temple, and when he actually finished building this temple uh, that's at the center of this accusation, the Lord turned up and appeared, read about it in First Kings 9, and he spoke very plainly about the blessing of obedience and the doing of justice and how that was to continue. And he spoke very plainly about the consequences of not continuing that promise. That if future generations would turn aside and not keep his commands, then I, God, will cut off Israel from the land which I gave them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And people will pass by, they will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done this in the land and to this house? It's because God does not fear the shame of coming to the aid of those who have been abused by the misuse of power. God has no hesitation in in exposing what is rotten in his church or in order to, to bring justice to the oppressed. Because of the misuse of power, God will come good on his word. Zion will be... Uh, a place, a ploughed field. And a ploughed field is a place where you plant a vine. So there's a little echo forward there. Like in the ruin of what's going to happen in this place, it will be ploughed. And Israel are always spoken of as a vine. There's a little hint of restoration on the other side of judgment there. But Jerusalem will be a heap of ruins. A majestic temple, a place overgrown with weeds. God is not silent when it comes to the misuse of power particularly when it misrepresents his character, which should have been harnessed, which should have been used to help the poor, to help the marginalized. That is the call. Most extraordinary, though, in all of this, I find, is this whisper of grace that comes with this terrifying judgment attached to this misuse of power. On both occasions, Micah begins his charge against uh, these power-perverting rulers that that they would hear. It's not just a sentencing that reveals what God thinks about the misuse of power. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation. God is actually saying, listen, turn. Even now, even now as judgment is on your doorstep, the relentless grace of God towards vile sinners is operating right up to the moment of their final and definitive rejection of it. God is concerned with the proper use of power, but he's also concerned with its correction and its renewal. In verses 8, we get a quick look at what proper use of power looks like. The origin and the motivation towards proper use of power is found here in the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God guiding and directing the words and the deeds of people that leads to the correct use of power. It's the overmastering presence of the character of God come to bear on the mind and the heart of a person that correctly goes and applies the power that they have. It is the spirit that fills a person with a passion to know justice. You know, it's the spirit of God that gives them the passion to know and apply the law appropriately. The result of being filled with the spirit of the Lord is a proper fusion of justice and power. French philosopher Blaise Pascal described this fusion saying, justice without power is powerless. Power without justice is tyrannical. 
But justice and power must therefore be connected. So what is just is also powerful. And what is powerful is also just. Pascal has described the work of this spirit in the life of a prophet, in the life of a person, to fuse together justice and power. Micah does not call out the abuse. Micah does not just call out the abuse of power. He functions as someone who uses the power that he has at his disposal to do justice, to love kindness and bring about the common good. His power is not used in a self-serving way. It is not self-aggrandizing. It is not self-protecting. It's quite the opposite. It serves others. It values others. It sacrifices for the well-being of others. A proper use of power combines justice and might together. And this word might, I'm filled with justice and might. This word might is, is about courage and integrity. Courage to call out sin. Courage to call out sinful practices and behaviors. Courage to remind people of the promises that they have made with God and the promises and of the consequences of sin. To be filled with the Spirit is to use power to stand up for and to stand on the side of the oppressed and the helpless victims of unjust laws and unjust people to be filled with the spirit sees you speak out god's word fearlessly his character fearlessly even when there's the likelihood of personal attack to be filled with the spirit means calling sin sin it's a power of conviction but it's the power it's a powerful love this this might even for the abuser, that they would change. Justice and might, the proper use of power, is characterized by the Spirit of God and it courageously and it lovingly brings about change in people's lives, rescuing them from the effects of idolatry and misused power. The proper use of power rescues, restores and redeems people. Well, we are meant to look away from and beyond Micah to the greatest prophet, the greatest priest and the greatest king, to, the, to, to a ruler that has universal and unparalleled power and might, to Jesus, who though he himself was a victim of flagrant abuse and by the religious figures and the political figures, he did not come to use his power for selfish purposes but came to serve others. This classic verse in Mark 10. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus built Zion and Jerusalem too. He built, that is, but not with the blood of others. He built the place where God is made known. Zion and Jerusalem are a place where God is made known and now in Jesus, God is making himself known in the person of Jesus, not a temple or a city. And he has built that knowledge of God, not through the blood of others, but through his own blood. Jesus, who is not like God, but is God, used his power in a self-giving love. The cross is how God chooses ultimately to exercise his power towards sin. Paul writes about this in Philippians. 
Have this mind, he begins. Have this mind. And this mind is in the start of the chapter. It's, it's a mind of selfishness, of self-giving, of using your resources and your power to help others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ. It's something that doesn't reside naturally. It comes through knowing Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to grasp, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born uh, in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are meant to look forward to this ultimate execution of power from God towards the misuse of power and the brokenness of sin in the world. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't the giving up of his power, but rather the use of his power to do for the helpless what they could not do for themselves. Face the silence and judgment of God for our own misuse of power. Here is the ultimate power harnessed for the ultimate well-being of people. This is the beginning of the renewal of power. Paul says that those who shelter under this act of power on the cross, where Jesus exchanges our sinful lives of misused power for his perfect life of power exercised for justice and for the love of God and the glory of God. For those who who, who see that and, and, and become aware of their need of that, there comes a renewal of the heart. The old scripts of perversion and detesting and greed are rewritten with the Spirit of God so that you now have the same approach to justice and and the same use of power that Jesus did. That's the promise of the gospel, that you can have a new heart that gives you a new way of viewing power, that gives you might and courage to use that power to help the helpless, the broken and the marginalized and to call out sin, to call out oppression when you see it. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But before this power can be exercised on others, the question is, has it been exercised on us? Is it being exercised on us? Has the loving power of God towards your sin and brokenness taken effect on you, renewing your heart? dealing with your sin, your power issues. It's extraordinary to think that the God of the universe unleashes all of his power that he created the universe with, that he sustains all things with, to recreate your heart. And the question is, do you trust that power in your life? Are you trusting God enough to allow him to come in and to deal with our sin. Because this is primarily about us. It's easy to look outward. But ultimately what Micah is saying is, what power issues reside in us? What things do we refuse? What kind of Zion are we building here that we don't want God in? Are you allowing God to deal with the power issues in your own life, like the sin in your own life. Because this is the extraordinary thing. When sin is dealt with in my life, and I become a new person, then I move towards you differently, don't I? 
And then when that begins to happen here, there and everywhere within a church, we have this new community that was envisaged, that Micah longed for, that Christ died for, that the Spirit now brings to life in us. And it begins with us dealing with our own power issues. It's not an external problem. It's not government. It's not churches. It's our own heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this book of Micah. It's a little bit confronting. It keeps poking into the brokenness of our hearts and exposing that we are broken. But we live in an age and a time where we have seen a clear demonstration of your restoration, your using of your power, Lord, to restore us broken people. That in Christ we can find all the power of God to redeem and restore and rescue our hearts if we would deal with our sin, if we would come humbly before you. We pray now that your spirit talks to us, that it it deals with our hearts, that it makes us people of justice, and then that people of justice would mightily, with courage, courage towards our own selves first, to deal with what's wrong here, and then to go and execute mercy and kindness and compassion because we understand it because we have first been served by you we now are free to serve others we thank you for this morning in your word we pray these things in jesus name amen